Welcome everyone to the Government Affairs Institute podcast, Congress Two Beers In. My name is Laura Blessing. I'm here with my colleague, Josh Huter. And today we have a really special guest, a warm welcome to Congressman Brendan Boyle. Um, you know, he represents the second district and has been representing Philadelphia area since 2015. He's the ranking member on the budget committee uh, and has also uh, and has sponsored legislation on the debt ceiling, uh, which is the topic that we're really delighted to have him here with us today to talk about. He's been sponsoring that legislation every Congress uh, since 2017 um, to effectively repeal it. And, you know, I'd like to start with just a little bit of a background on the debt ceiling uh, before we get into his really valuable perspective on it and what's currently going on in Congress. Um, and I'm going to try to be brief here because the congressman is the star of the show. So I'm just going to highlight aspects of the debt ceiling that I feel don't get enough attention. Uh, it was created in 1917 and further modified in 1939 to allow the Treasury Department greater flexibility and to modernize federal financing. It imposes an aggregate limit on almost all federal debt. And notably, raising the debt limit does not incur additional spending. Rather, it allows the Treasury to borrow money to cover spending Congress has already voted for. Now, what's misunderstood, I think, is two things. People think of the debt ceiling as a tool of fiscal restraint and or, or oversight. It wasn't designed that way. It hasn't worked that way. The truth is the opposite. It was created with a design to give Treasury more flexibility, not less, in borrowing money to finance the war effort. Before 1917, Congress actually authorized borrowing for specific individual purposes, such as the Panama Canal in 1902 with the Spooner Act. And it hasn't acted as a meaningful fiscal restraint since. Uh, looking at congressional history, looking at amending debt ceiling votes or otherwise pairing debt ceiling negotiations with reforms that affect deficits have been minor, but also such policies and reforms have both spent more money as well as saved money. So in the early 1970s, the debt ceiling votes were seen as such safe must pass legislation that they attracted additional social security benefits. In the 1980s, non-germane amendments included both raising and cutting different taxes. And our latest sequestration regime since 2011 has not meaningfully reduced deficits as those limits were regularly raised roughly every two years. It also isn't used effectively for oversight. Uh, I realize that the term effective is a little subjective here, but I'd like to say that Congress has a real strong interest in oversight on taxing and spending, uh, especially even comparatively speaking. But if we think about what elements of good oversight or conditions for bigger fiscal reforms are, the debt ceiling really doesn't look like that. High stakes negotiations done at the last minute that are focused on averting a very real risk of default, but not focused on accumulating expertise and creating a promising environment for compromise is just not a good idea. It's also been partisan, uh, and not from the very, very beginning, but from very early on. Uh, you know, it's been remarkably stable until about 1940. It's entirely unchanged from 1921 to 1931. So I don't want to say throughout all of its history, but from very, very early. So both parties have actually politicized it in rhetoric by having a majority of their caucus or conference vote in opposition by the refusal to bring up a vote in more since 1953. So it is in no one's memory that there's been a good period for the debt ceiling. And it's come with very real risks since 1957. There's an early episode with the 1957 fight uh, that's prompting the Air Force to drastically curtail spending, which economists identified as a major cause in the 1957 to 58 recession. And of course, the period since 2011 has been regularly perilous. So this is me just kind of highlighting a little bit of history that doesn't get a lot of attention, as well as the early creation years of the debt ceiling. Uh, but I, I want to uh, go into our special guest, um, you know, uh, Congressman you know, you have come to Congress after the 2011 uh, imbroglio that gets so much attention. Uh, tell me how you got interested in the debt ceiling. Well, it's uh, just really great to be with you, uh, Laura and Josh. And I'm sorry you turned it to me because I, I was very interested in, in more of the history, some of which I know, but even some of the anecdotes you cited, like the one in the 1950s, I was not aware of. Yeah. Um, but you were one of the few people, and, and the three of us are three of the few people who seem to know that in fact, the debt ceiling is this accident of history. Um, this sort of fairy tale that is told about the debt ceiling is goes something like this. Our founding fathers, um, somewhere between Philadelphia and uh, Mount Sinai, received on tablets 
this instruction to create the debt ceiling as a high-minded way that future Congresses could think about their spending. It's a great fairy tale. And like a lot of fairy tales, it is 100% false. Um, it is an accident, as you pointed out, the history. In fact, the debt ceiling came about um, to make it easier, not more difficult uh, for Treasury to pay its debts. And it's interesting that you, um, we tried to go back, uh, my, my House Budget Committee staff and I, to really identify when did it first become weaponized. You actually date it a bit earlier than, than we do, <laughs> because even by my recollection, even by my own living recollection, it wasn't until Newt Gingrich in the mid-1990s that I remember even really becoming cognizant of the debt ceiling, um, although... Uh, that debate in 1995 was more about the government shutdown than a threat of default. So it really wasn't until fast forward to 2010, uh, 2011, when the Tea Party Congress uh, came to power explicitly on a pledge to uh, to rein in spending. By the way, the way that movement very quickly morphed into Trumpism, I, I will um, leave it to others to uh, judge as to what their main motivation was. Uh, I don't think it was actually about spending and deficit and debt, but nonetheless, that was what they were peddling back in 2011. And we came so close in the summer of 2011 to uh, reaching default that of course we received the first ever credit downgrade uh, in American history, uh, which has subsequently cost us billions of dollars uh, in increased borrowing costs. Now. I come to Congress four years or about three and a half years later in January 2015. And oddly enough, even though no one was really talking about it at the time, I started working on the debt ceiling. Um, former Speaker or Speaker Emerita uh, Nancy Pelosi always teases me a little bit on my uh, interest in, you know, what was kind of a geeky topic. The reason why I was interested in it is because. Um, I believed then that we were going to reach at some point another moment like the summer of 2011, that the fact that this was weaponized and successfully weaponized, the reality is the Republican side that held up uh, passage of the debt ceiling did so in order to win concessions from then President Obama. They were successful in getting concessions. And so once that script had been written, um, I thought it would be too tempting um, to, to not see a future Republican Congress with a Democrat in the White House return to it. And, and here we are. Uh, so um, so I've been someone who, and, and then ironically, um, just independent of that, I happened to rise on the budget committee to uh, where I am now, which is the ranking member or, or lead Democrat uh, on the committee. Um, so, uh, this week with, uh, Kevin McCarthy's proposal on the floor, I will be leading the, uh, floor debate on the democratic side, uh, against it. So we had two sort of independent things kind of come to a head, um, uh, for this, for this interesting moment. So I'm glad to be in, in this, um, key position. Uh, I, uh, very much wish and am working to change the seriousness of this because I do believe that whether it's now or at some point in the future, as long as we keep the concept of the debt ceiling and the way in which it's raised, as long as we keep that the way it is and don't change it, when you marry that with the dysfunction of our politics, I think it's a pretty tall order to ask us to get it right 100% of the time. Uh, I do uh, very much fear that either this summer uh, or at some point in the future, we will default. Congressman, I think that that's sort of, you're sort of terrifyingly bringing up 2011 as, as a comparable example here. Um, and there seem to be like a couple uh, kind of modes of thought or, or, or you know groups of thought when it comes to the debt ceiling. It's like, 
on the one hand, you've got the group that's saying like default's not really a threat. It's too much of a liability in terms of overall fiscal health of the United States and the globe um, in many respects that it's something that you know opposition parties may play with, but ultimately will go ahead and raise the last second. And then you have the group of thought that's sort of like this is a terrible idea, like regardless of whether or not people believe it's going to be raised, it shouldn't even be within the scope of things. Um, in terms of the threat of actual default, how close do you think we are to that 2011 moment uh, where we're kind of going right up to the, to the brink of it? So I um, predicted uh, last October, November, when I was leading a letter of a number of House Democratic colleagues, about 30 or so, and that letter was saying that we needed to raise the debt ceiling in lame duck which was right after the election in November. We were in session for a good six weeks. Uh, we seemed to have some support for that at the time with House Democratic leadership, but there's a real distinct lack of enthusiasm and interest on the Senate Democratic leadership side, um, something I greatly regret because I thought it was, you know, I don't think I was being Nostradamus to recognize that this is where we were headed with the Republicans taking over the House and that we needed to raise the debt ceiling before that happened. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't raise the debt ceiling. House Republicans took over at noon on January 3rd, finally elected their own guy speaker about five days later. Uh, and here we are. Uh, the debt ceiling has been taken hostage. They're still not quite sure what they want uh, in ransom for the hostage. They've put together a sort of hodgepodge of uh, a dozen or so different things anywhere from permitting reform to all sorts of various cuts uh, in order to release the hostage. Unfortunately, though, the way I see this playing out is, good news is I do believe the debt ceiling will ultimately be raised. Speaker McCarthy is, has made clear several times that he understands it has to be raised and said that explicitly. But the bad news is I very much see this playing out the same way uh, summer of 2011 did. I think it will go dangerously close to the deadline, so much so I can easily see another credit downgrade happening to the United States, which in the end will actually increase deficit and debt uh, and make it more expensive uh, for us to borrow. Um, so I don't see anything particularly good coming out of this. I, I hope I'm wrong and that we're able to resolve this before we reach that point. But in my view, um, that is certainly the the more likely than not scenario. Gotcha. You're highlighting so many different important things here. Um, I, I want to kind of uh, highlight a couple of these threads and then ask a follow up. I mean, I think it's really important to note that even if we get close to default, it can still have very real consequences, um, a potential downgrade like what happened in uh, 2011. Um, and additional costs to treasuries borrowing. Uh, you can have an effect on the mortgage markets um, as lenders are, are less excited uh, to, to finance that sort of endeavor, uh, hits to consumer confidence and more. So even with 2011, where it's a success story of Biden working together uh, with McConnell to avert default at the last minute, uh, it's still a, a story where there's there's a, a, a real risk um, right. that, the risk of default has itself had its own consequences. Um, and we don't want to have the reputation of a country that is is going to endanger world markets. Um, that really undermines us, I think, going forward as, an, as a nation. So I think that's a really important thing to, to kind of point out. And I, I think we'll, we might come back to, to different uh, aspects of, of 2011. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, like, what this is like from a member's point of view. Is it difficult for them to take votes on the debt ceiling when you try to get uh, different members' attention to work on this? Uh, you know, what is that like for you if you are trying to uh, get people to sign on to a bill or sign on to a letter? Um, kind of take take our listeners in, into, you know, let us be a fly on the wall in these meetings that you're having that we would otherwise otherwise not be a party for. Party, party yeah, I so I'll have to go back to kind of previous um, examples because we're not near the point of having a, a vote yet, obviously, on, on a clean debt ceiling increase. 
but I have to say, um, I, I, I've always found it funny that, that some, um, some of my colleagues have been very reticent, especially if they're in frontline districts, which means they're in very kind of 50-50 districts, uh, being in very competitive races. And some will, you know, um, be very nervous about raising the debt ceiling. I, I would like to point out that in 2022, um, it was such a huge, massive issue that there were precisely zero television ads run against any member who voted to raise the debt ceiling uh, of either party. So I think, um, you know, the political impact uh, of this is often uh, exaggerated. I'd also say that one of the challenges, uh, you know, if you look at the umpteen number of times the debt ceiling has been raised since 2011, we have this cycle in which as the date approaches, the X date, there will be a perceived crisis. Finally, it gets resolved for that specific increase of the debt ceiling. And then people immediately don't want to think about it and want to forget about it. Um, and all they do, of course, is guarantee that we'll go through that cycle again. I find that very frustrating uh, when the debt ceiling is, is not when the deadline is not approaching. It has been very difficult for me to try to get, um, you know, members of the media or um, some of my colleagues um, all that interested in the concept that, hey, we need to permanently reform this, that this is really insane uh, that we keep doing this to ourselves because we you know, we in no way benefit. Uh, I mean, we quote unquote succeed in that we avoid disaster, but we're not actually tangibly better off the day after we raise the debt ceiling. Um, so, um, you know, really it's, it's kind of like being on a uh, treadmill constantly and we can just see this cycle time and time again repeat itself. That's a, a really valuable point of view. I'm just going to have a quick Quick follow-up before going to whatever Josh's question is after me. Um, do you think there are any pieces of misinformation that members of Congress believe about the debt ceiling? Because you, you see this play out with different uh, economic policies in a way that has real consequences for policymaking. Yeah, you actually, I want to highlight a um, sit-down interview that Sean Hannity did with uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy about a week after he was finally elected speaker. The um, interview was done in the Rayburn room of the Capitol, which is right off the House floor. And the audience was a collection of a few dozen uh, House Republican members. In that interview, uh, Sean Hannity made clear that he thought default was the same as a government shutdown. He was saying, well, of course we can weather, I'm paraphrasing here, but of course we can weather default. We've gone through it before. You know, government employees don't get paychecks. Um, the speaker answered the question in a way in, in which he didn't correct him. But subsequent to that, there were other House Republican members who have given interviews where they have very clearly conflated and confused a government shutdown with what would be the first default in American history. That is a real concern I have about a certain lack of awareness uh, on, the, on the part of some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I'm not attempting to be partisan about it, but frankly, I've not heard one Democratic member uh, make that same mistake. So I think a, a real lack of awareness or education on the part of some and that also extends to uh, a portion of the public as well that are confusing government shutdown, which we have gone through. While I've been in Congress, we've gone through several, unfortunately. By the way, they are also moronic and don't achieve anything and actually end up costing us more money than if we had just kept the government open. Nonetheless, they are clearly survivable. As you know, default would be uh, an entire entirely different uh, order of magnitude of problem. Absolutely. Well, that kind of brings me to uh, another problematic thing is, how is this thing going to get raised this time around? I mean, we have a situation. Well, wait a minute. That's, that's why I'm on the podcast. I was hoping <laughs> both right. of you could tell me. We're, we're <laughs> yeah. fixing America. You're welcome. I, I'm just, I, you know, this, this seems that, I mean, you highlight a lot of 
lot of really interesting points. Um, the House Republicans have put together a really, really diverse bill uh, trying to sort of like build a coalition <laughs> behind something. That's a great um, euphemism. Oh, it is diverse. All right. Uh, I like to call it <laughs> legislative Frankenstein. <laughs> right. And there's it's sort of like piecing this together bit by bit, trying to bring in, you know, 10 votes here, 15 votes here, five votes here. Um, and as this negotiation goes, it's almost certain that, you know, the the Senate and the White House are not going to accept the House's terms on this. Um, right. So do you think is the House majority going to be able to raise this by themselves? Um, is it going to require bipartisan support? Like how how do you think this plays out at the end of the day? Uh, so first, you um, made the keen observation that the way the bill is currently constructed, the, the McCarthy bill that would raise the debt ceiling for about 11 months, coupled with all sorts of various other um, provisions, that bill is an effort to get uh, 218 votes of members of his caucus. Uh, it was designed in such a way to solve a political problem not to uh, actually be a coherent budget. In fact, it is technically not a budget document. It does not lay out line by line what our um, spending would be for the next fiscal year. Uh, so uh, no, I mean, even if this were to pass um, this week, uh, the, that will not be signed into law. It won't even be taken up in the Senate, but it would solve another uh, challenge the political challenge that Kevin McCarthy has, and that is one of credibility. I mean, right now there are many of us, in whether in the White House or congressional Democrats, who really doubt Kevin McCarthy's ability to get 218 votes on his own side for anything, uh, and that uh, is is a killer for him in terms of wanting to be in the game and negotiate. You know. If Nancy Pelosi, when she was speaker, sat down at a table, folks knew whether they agreed or disagreed with her. You had to take her seriously because she knew how to count votes and get a bill passed on the House floor. We had exactly the same number, 222 members, that Kevin McCarthy has this term. I mean, it's just an irony of history. All of the big pieces of legislation that were passed last term was with a Congress of 222 House Democrats. Well, we now have 222 House Republicans, um, and they're having an infinitely, uh, infinitely more difficult time than we ever did. So McCarthy, more than anything else, wants a bill on this subject to pass just to show that he can get something passed to help give him greater credibility um, with Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, uh, and the White House. Separately, how does this uh, end up finally getting resolved? The difficulty for Kevin McCarthy is that one way or the other, he is going to have to be putting a bill on the floor that raises the debt ceiling and that can win the support of President Biden and at least 60 members of the Senate. Whatever that looks like, it is not going to be something that the House Freedom Caucus and the other similar type groups within his conference uh, are going to be in any way in agreement with. It's probably going to be a bill that a majority of his House Republican colleagues disagree with and don't vote for. That politically is going to take a lot of um, strength and courage on his part. Uh, and really, the only way this can end is with him willing to do that. So you don't I guess you don't endorse many of the kind of procedural jujitsu moves that have been discussed out there about getting around McCarthy um, to raise the so, debt ceiling. Yeah. So you're referencing 14th Amendment, I assume, um, trillion dollar coin. There might be one or two others. So here's the challenge, and I'm going to answer this, but I, I'd be interested in, in your viewpoints because this is, I think, more of a conversation. Suppose the president entertained one of those and executed them. Would that have credibility with the markets? Um, while maybe legally we would raise the debt ceiling, would it lack credibility to the point that we de facto saw the same sort of interest rate increases um, that would accompany a default. 
I don't know the answer to that. I suspect that it would be not well received by, you know, those who look to the U.S. as the reserve currency around the world. If you're looking at it as a last second break glass in a case of emergency option, then I wouldn't totally rule it out. But I have always been a skeptic because I think even if um, we had to go down that road, I think we would still end up incurring some of the damage that you would see from an outright default. But I would be very interested if I would ask you, if you don't mind, do you think I'm, I'm right or wrong in that? I'm happy to get into some of the different options that you talked about, but why doesn't yeah. Josh highlight congressional procedure for a second? Well, well, one one thing that, you know, the, the discharge petitions floated yeah. around for a while. Why don't you um, briefly explain what a discharge petition is to our listeners, Josh? Yeah, and, uh, and, and I'm sorry, before you do that, just to be clear, uh, my comments were not about discharge petition. They were because obviously legally, if that were to succeed, that's the challenge. But if that were to succeed, there would be no if the debt ceiling were raised by discharge petition, there would be no question that, that it was raised legally. My comments were more about 14th Amendment and trillion dollar coin. Yeah, that's that's way out of my expertise. <laughs> like I, I would actually defer to your expertise on that one because uh, you know it does seem like a break class in an emergency type situation. Well, we can split this question, Josh. You 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 do uh, discharge petition. I'll do the others. <laughs> sure. Well, one of the things that you know there there are a lot of different ideas about there about how to get around McCarthy should he be in this position where he can't get a majority of votes from his conference in order to raise the debt ceiling. How could he allow a vote to happen, right? And the, you know, some ideas like the discharge petition have been put out there, um, using that as a mechanism to get around McCarthy and sort of force the House to vote on, on a debt ceiling increase, or doing things like you know voting against the previous question. You know, if they vote against the previous question on a rule, that's a vote to kind of stop debate and move on to passage. But if you vote that down, then the minority gets an opportunity to offer an amendment. And theoretically, you can offer an amendment like, hey, let's raise the debt ceiling and make it you know, under these stipulations, and then you would have another House vote. These are kind of fantastic and fantastical um, uh, ideas about how to sort of manipulate the House to get around the leadership. What are the odds, do you think, that these actually uh, come to fruition or actually work? So specifically on the uh, discharge petition or the the less often invoked, and you're very wise to bring this up, um, that if uh, a vote were to take place in which minority can wrest control of the the question on the floor, I don't um, I don't I do not to use a double negative. I do not say that is impossible. Uh, however, it is highly unlikely. I've been in Congress. This is my ninth year now. I've seen a discharge petition work exactly once um, in the past, uh, you know, since the turn of the century, I think it's uh, worked twice. So we're talking about a once in a decade or so um, <laughs> gambit that that works. Uh, you know, that's better than zero, but right. probably not what you want to uh, bet the full faith and credit of the United States on. Um, interestingly, I would say also, and this might be relevant here, if it were to work, based on those previous examples, you basically need the tacit support of the speaker. Uh, when the ex so the example that I'm most familiar with that happened during my time, the export import bank needed to be reauthorized. There was a clear majority. House Republicans controlled the House Representatives. Um, there was a clear majority willing to vote for it. But Speaker, I believe it was Boehner at the time, was unwilling to uh, put this on the House floor because he was essentially being held hostage by the Freedom Caucus. Uh, there was a, um, let's just say there was a very healthy suspicion that uh, John Boehner was perfectly fine seeing the Export-Import Bank reauthorized, but just didn't uh, feel that he um, was in a position to be able to put the bill on, on the House floor. And so sure enough, you saw a number of House Republicans join with, I believe, every House Democrat to sign that discharge petition uh, and get it on the House floor. You have to jump through. I mean, I'm giving a very simplified version because, as you know, Josh, you have to also jump through a number of other parliamentary mm -hmm. hurdles 
including, you know, 30 legislative days on the front end, even to start the discharge petition process. Some more legislative days, even after you get 218 signatures. But nonetheless, with, again, the tacit support of the speaker, that was done. And that is the way that we were able to uh, ultimately reauthorize the Export-Import Bank. So not impossible, very unlikely. But if you have a speaker who wants to see something happen, knows something has to happen, but does not want to uh, be seen as supporting it, this is a potential option. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I and you know, I, Josh is a is an expert in congressional procedures, so he's a you know wonderful person to weigh in on just how difficult uh, this is. Um, some of the other options that you mentioned, uh, whether it's Fourteenth Amendment or trillion dollar coin, I, I frankly feel like there are a number of different uh, you know suggestions here that are. Uh, feel optimistic, but are not very realistic. Um, yeah. You know, the trillion dollar coin is is not something, it, it, it just doesn't feel like it reflects the seriousness of the world's, world's largest economy, of the world's superpower. Um, you know, uh, same thing with the 14th Amendment uh, discussions. You know, we've raised the debt ceiling over a hundred times, we've clearly signaled to markets, to everybody that this is a statutory requirement that we have, um, you know, not to, you know, quote Seinfeld, but I don't think you can yada, 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 like the debt ceiling on this one. <laughs> um, you know, there has to be some sort of statutory fix here. And, um, you know, whether it's, you know, I, I think that getting getting rid of the thing entirely would be the safest option, which is Janet Yellen's position. It's your position. Um, you know, to be sure, there are a number of different ways that you could blunt it. Uh, that would be safer than what we have now. Um, you know, uh, uh, some version of, of the McConnell rule where you would need some sort of allow Treasury to raise it and then require some sort of super majoritarian. So, Laura, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's actually my reform proposal. Oh, okay. This is the <laughs> so one I was going to introduce. I'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, do it. I'll talk about that. I'll talk about that later because I, I do. Before we leave, kind of the uh, the topic on trillion dollar coin and Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, well, actually, first, most importantly, I need to say you have validated my opinion that not a day goes by in which I don't use a Seinfeld reference. So thank you for the yada, yada, yada. Um, now, in terms of, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment, um, trillion dollar coin, ideas along those lines, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I didn't think that, you know, frankly, the, the markets would accept that and that we would um, unfortunately suffer some economic damage if we went down that road. There's another aspect of this, though, that would have to um, keep in mind. I don't think there's any doubt any movement like that would bring about a lawsuit and a, a lawsuit that would ultimately be adjudicated at and by the Supreme Court of the United States. So what happens? We would have three months, six months in which markets are in turmoil, interest rates are spiking, we have layoffs while we're waiting for the Supreme Court. And basically the president of the United States and the Congress of the United States would be saying that the full faith and credit of the United States and whether or not we have a worldwide recession or even depression is up to what the Supreme Court decides. So again, practically speaking, I, I, just, I, I think it's pretty obvious um, why we would not want to go down that road. Yeah, that feels like the optimistic version of what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes. <laughs> Congressman, I, I did want to ask you about your preferred method of dealing with the yeah. debt ceiling. We, we've done some weird stuff in American history when it comes to dealing with the debt ceiling, um, like the Gephardt rule, like as soon as Congress passes a budget, automatically it's triggered and lifted, for example. Um, so there, there are a lot of different ways that you could skin this cat, but what is your preferred way of doing it? Yeah, and actually, this is where, as time has gone on, my thinking or my approach has evolved a little bit. I initially back... Uh, Several terms ago, introduced a bill 
Um, and separately, there are a couple other bills out there that would do the same thing. I My first bill was the straight up, get rid of the debt ceiling. It's an accident of history. It serves no purpose. It only presents potential danger. Uh, let's just get rid of it. But then in talking to a number of my colleagues who, to be fair, are, are in more challenging districts than mine, uh, I came as I, I am, you know, a pragmatist, I'm, I, I, I like JFK's phrase, an idealist without illusions, I came to recognize the practical reality that that is an enormously difficult vote for them and one they're not necessarily willing to put up. So I, I essentially went back to the drawing board and came up with a second proposal, uh, which I introduced last term. I call it the Debt Ceiling Reform Act. And it is exactly as Laura mentioned, it is essentially the Mitch McConnell plan on how the 2011 debt ceiling um, got resolved. And that is to flip the burden. So instead of Congress having, having to lead the uh, raising of the debt ceiling, this would allow the executive branch, it's likely treasury officials, such as the secretary of the treasury, to Notify Congress that it is, that uh, he or she is authorizing an increase in the debt ceiling, an X amount. Congress would have a certain amount of time, I think it's 30 legislative days or 30 calendar days, uh, to vote a resolution of disapproval. And absent that, um, the debt ceiling would be raised. And that would certainly, while it would keep the concept of a debt ceiling on the books, Practically speaking, it would end it as a um, an issue that is very much part of our political food fight. It seems to make it kind of flip the burden. I think one of the I, I don't know, and you can tell me uh, what what you how you feel about this, but um, it seems to me that members are are very scared of the debt ceiling vote of you know tying their themselves to like raising it to a particular number because the number has frankly gotten pretty big. And so like hey, we're raising it to like thirty two trillion dollars. People hear thirty two trillion and they assume wow that's really bad sort of thing. Congress can't get its act together. Yada yada. Um, I personally you know I, I agree with your assessment. I'm glad that you you said it that. It didn't seem to make any to, to lose any seats this past time around. Right. Like I don't think anybody's career was sort of like bent on their increase of the debt ceiling. Um, but this seems to make it uh, far more politically easy for them to vote for because it's kind of confusing to, to explain, right? It's like, hey, we've taken that we've dealt with the debt ceiling without actually raising it to a particular number. Do you think that that has more political advantages than just simply yeah, lifting it? I, up? So when I, um, I think it was about a year ago, and I was talking about this to uh, two Republican colleagues, and they both said, oh, we uh, we hope your bill passes because that would be much easier for us um, if, if that were the case. Because unfortunately, you know, the debt ceiling is demagogued in such a way that many people, understandably, when they hear about the debt ceiling, tend to think it is about increasing debt which of course it is not about. It is about whether or not we pay the bills um, for spending that was was already done sometimes years and years ago. Um, so one of the challenges we have out there is that there is such a misconception in the public's mind when it comes to the debt ceiling to begin with. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the misconceptions on the debt ceiling, as well as just economic policy writ large, um, end up being their own kind of burden uh, to policymaking. Um, I think that's really well described. Um, you know, and I, I do think that with this kind of current episode, that practically speaking, as, as you've identified, McCarthy is going to have to He's, he's going to have to find a whole bunch of Democratic votes. And the more Democratic yeah. votes he finds, the more Republican votes he's going to lose. And, you know, we are shaping up to have just a lot of different elements in the mix uh, that will make this, I think, come closer to Treasury's X date, to being more unpredictable, um, whether it's the razor thin margins you have in the House, whether it's uh, groups within parties uh, where you're going to lose some members as you gain others. Um, you know, the Senate is not going to be a cakewalk. I think the House will be more difficult, but the Senate is going to be significant as well. Um, right. And, you know, frankly, we've seen 
uh, different members of Congress go through their own kind of period of political learning. So for example, Speaker Boehner uh, in the lead up to the 2011 imbroglio here, you know, he makes some statements about like, oh gosh, we, you know, do we necessarily know that this would be a bad thing if, if we didn't pass uh, the debt, debt limit? Uh, he holds a, a show vote to show that he has the votes uh, to, uh, you know, to vote it down um, early on before they get closer to Treasury's X date. And yet, you know, this same person goes through a period of political learning. And by 2014, he's rounding up, you know, Democratic votes to yeah. make sure that he passes it. Um, and, you know, Speaker McCarthy is in a position where he wants to show uh, harder right fiscal conservatives in his party, whether that be the Freedom Caucus or others, uh, that he's taking their views seriously. Um, and that sort of an incentive is something that could really complicate the process of getting to some sort of compromise here. Um, I mean, what is your, when you think about the different moving pieces that have to come together, um, you know, what, how do you think about them? Are you thinking about them in this way? Is there something I'm missing? Because hmm. I feel like we're, we're shaping up to have, have a circumstance that might potentially be even more volatile than 2011. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's right. Uh, very interesting too, the way you lay it out. I had actually forgotten. I wasn't in Congress at the time I was in the state legislature but I had actually forgotten myself um, watching it from you know a bit of a distance, the evolution that John Boehner himself uh, underwent from 2010, 2011 until you know the point when then when I was serving with him in uh, in 2015. Um, you know, I should remind us, by the way, or or, or folks are unaware, the vast majority of my House colleagues uh, were not there at that time. Correct. Only um, one third. <laughs> yeah. I, so you, you beat me to it. I was about to say. Oh, I'm I, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, so And whenever I say that to groups, they are generally uh, shocked because, you know, they assume that the Congress doesn't change. Um, everyone wins reelection. In fact, two thirds of the membership is new yeah. um, since I think since 2014. Um, so um, 2011. Yeah. It's since 2011. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in the, looking at my seniority number, I think I'm in the upper 37, 38 percentile. Uh, and, and I was elected in, in 2014 because, and that makes sense. 2012 was not an election where you saw much change. Um, but we've had so much the 2014, or, uh, yeah, 2014 election, which was kind of a mini Republican wave, Trump in 2016. A massive Democratic year in uh, in 2018, and then we've had two subsequent elections since then. So, the sort of living history that you just presented, the vast majority of my colleagues have no such uh, ex personal experience with this. This will be their first time. That does further complicate uh, further complicate matters. One difference, though, I would draw between. 2011 and now a dozen years later. And this is the difference within the Republican Party because of Trump. In 2010, 2011, so much of the Republican mantra was about the Tea Party. It was about spending. It was about deficit and it was about debt. MAGA is about a lot of things, but it's not about that. Um, what motivates your average Republican primary voter, um, it, it's the cultural issues. It's the grievance stuff. It's the kind of things that if you watch Fox News tonight in prime time, you'll see them talking about very little about deficit and debt. They've kind of totally flipped when it comes to the concepts of entitlement reform um, the sort of old-fashioned uh, Romney-Ryan economics that, if you think about, were really uh, motivating the Republican side in 2011 and 2012, that's gone. I mean, Trump has, in my view, permanently changed the Republican Party when it comes to that. And so that perhaps might make it, and this is, you know, 
part my view and part probably me hoping this is the case, uh, that might make it a little bit easier this time around. Because, you know, if you have a um, Republican member who is on the fence about whether or not to vote on this, a lot of those Republican members, when they look at what their primary electorate cares about, it's not necessarily deficit and debt. I mean, the biggest single litmus test in a Republican Party today is to what degree you have been loyal to Donald Trump. Just go ask Liz Cheney, who had one of the most conservative voting records in the House of Representatives, but she violated that one key provision and then lost her primary and, uh, sad to say, lost her primary by a pretty large margin. So um, oddly enough, perhaps that will make this go around uh, a little bit easier once we get toward the end. That's a really important perspective. I mean, I, I, I think it's a good perspective on what motivates folks. I would kind of personally push back a little and say that I, I do think that fiscal conservatism is still important to a lot of Republicans in a significant way, even if it's uh, not what is animating um, a lot of bill introduction, both on the federal and state level, um, or, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, the importance of a, uh, you know, going uh, opposition to uh, Donald Trump is certainly, uh, you know, uh, very well documented <laughs> with Liz Cheney and others. Um, uh, this this may be an this may be an ex an example where I I might be less optimistic than you are <laughs> for for this latest episode <laughs> with some yeah. of the fiscal conservatism well, of the Republican caucus, but I I think you're you know the the view is definitely really valuable uh, to us understanding how to think about um, what you see as motivating folks. Look, I I will say this, uh, Laura, and and I've watched and um, paid very special interest to a lot of Republican congressional primaries over the last couple yeah. cycles, I can't think of one that was about, um, I can't think of one attack ad against a Republican in a primary that was about voting to increase spending mm -hmm. uh, and, and increase debt. That is a market change yeah. from where things were a dozen years ago. Yeah, I mean, you do have the pattern of if a Republican is in the White House, uh, this is, you know, the no. votes to raise spending um, are not weaponized the way that they are if a Democrat. Uh, bingo. One hundred percent. Yes. It's, it's a long-term historical pattern. It yeah. goes back to Reagan. Congressman, one thing I wanted to ask you is kind of like uh, both what you and Laura are touching upon. Um, you know, it was when we were going through this iteration in 2011, 2012, I had a Republican member of Congress describe it to me as there were there were a bunch of there was a caucus within his conference that he called the the vote no hope yes caucus, right? They couldn't yeah. support any sort of fiscal changes or extra spending or raising the debt limit, but they sure hoped that it would just be dealt with by somebody else. Um, and that seemed to have intensified over time. That 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 portion of the conference has gotten larger and larger and larger. Whether that's purely like you know the, the growth of fiscal conservatism within particular ranks within the party, or if it's just like outright opposition to Democrats and a Democratic president, um, it seems to be taking up a larger and larger share of votes in the House in particular and in the Senate as well. Um, so you know if you were looking at this kind of cynically you might think like oh well the vote no hope yet caucus is getting really large and they kind of understand that these kind of fiscal housekeeping issues are getting more and more difficult to manage uh, when they're in the majority do you have more hope that you have a permanent solution for the debt ceiling uh, this time around, uh, given the fact that it's become such a, a difficult thing for Republican majorities to pass within the last 10 years? I can only remember like maybe two, three bills total where they either raised the debt ceiling or increased or, or, or funded the federal government with a majority of their conference uh, in the House. You know, I. I do believe we will ultimately, uh, I mean, I have to be an optimist to, about this. I, actually, I wouldn't be in this profession if I if I weren't someone who believed that things can change. Um, I do believe ultimately a reform, whether it's my exact proposal or one like it, will be enacted into law because it's one of those rare instances in which doing the right thing policy-wise and doing the convenient thing politically happen to align. Uh, in the end, voting on a proposal like mine, frankly, would be an easier vote 
for those who want to hope the debt ceiling is somehow magically raised, but don't want their vote to be uh, counted as as doing it. Um, so, you know, as I make this vaunted and genuine effort to uh, to get my bill passed or something like it, I mean, in the end, I I don't really care as much about pride of authorship. I care about this problem permanently being resolved and us as a country never defaulting. Uh, and I will flat out appeal to the um, self-interest of my colleagues uh, <laughs> to recognize this is a way to do the responsible thing and also the politically, frankly, more convenient thing. Uh, and if that's what it takes to get it done, I, I'm happy to do that. And as I said, that's why I am uh, ultimately optimistic you will see a reform like this. I mean, look, I point again to how 2011 got resolved. It was exactly this. Um, th there is a pretty strong reason for that. So I can easily see that being the the resolution, something like it, if not exactly it, uh, being the resolution again. Sure. I just want to kind of touch on 2011 and we can uh, briefly one more time and then we can kind of uh, move towards towards uh, any final thoughts that you have. Uh, we're, we're approaching, um, you know, uh, uh, car ride to the office time, which is our is is our perfect sweet spot for for uh, <laughs> for an episode length. Um, you know, with with 2011, I mean, this is resolved with you know, the creation of the super committee, um, which uh, it was designed to find cut, cuts. And if they couldn't find cuts, they would do sequestration, um, which is where we ended up with the Budget Control right. Act of 2011 uh, for a decade. And of course, all those, those, uh, you know, those, uh, what were designed to be across the board cuts, uh, which is what sequestration is uh, for our listeners, um, you know, were basically blunted roughly every two years. And I don't want to say that there were no savings that came out of that episode, but they were really very modest. And uh, again, those limits got raised every two years. There's one episode where it's raised every three years. Um, and, you know, I think that another bit of misunderstanding about the debt ceiling is that it's seen as a dangerous tool that maybe has promise for policy wins. And, you know, I think if you do a reading of congressional history, whether it's 2011 or earlier, it's that this is both a very extremely dangerous tool, but it's one that doesn't typically result in a big policy change one way or another. So while I don't have a crystal ball, I can't tell exactly how this one is going to shake out. Um, you know, I would suspect uh, that we're not, you know, in terms of like actual concessions, that there aren't major ones that are made, that we might have a few things around the margins uh, that happen. Um, but this is, isn't really like an effective tool for getting what you want in Congress. And I, I think people see it as a potential promise for that um, in a way that uh, makes this tool endure politically because they think they might be able to use it and might be able to get what they want when they they otherwise can't in a Congress where it might be difficult for them to get their favorite uh, policy items. Um, and gosh, I've made a statement and I should have a question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, what do you think? I mean, is this is this something where when you talk with other members of Congress, do they have this impression that this is a potential tool to really get what they want? Um, is that how they understand 2011? Um, if you can kind of, again, let yeah, us fly in the wall in one of those rooms where we don't normally get to get to hang out. Yeah, you know, I, as I mentioned, I think earlier I led a uh, letter in late October to um, congressional leadership saying that we needed to raise the debt ceiling and lame duck. Um, again, not because I'm Nostradamus, but because it was pretty easy to see that this is what a new Republican majority was planning to do. In fact, in that letter, I quoted John Thune, Kevin McCarthy, several others uh, who were outright saying that they planned to use the debt ceiling as leverage 
in order to get policy gains and, and policy wins. Um, so there's no question that perception exists that if you take uh, this hostage, um, that you could you know somehow win something policy-wise you care about. And you know, let's just um, let's call it as it is. Let's not both sides this. This is something the Democratic side, at least in my lifetime, does not do. Um, I'm a Democrat who, in the minority, as well as in the majority, with a Republican in the White House, have voted to I have voted to increase the debt ceiling uh, with a Republican president. Um, I did not say, and my Democratic colleagues did not say, well, all right, President Trump, we'll vote to increase the debt ceiling, but you need to agree to lower the Medicare age to 55, or you need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, or you need to uh, pass stronger gun control legislation. We didn't do that. That would be the equivalent of us doing what the Republicans are doing today. Um, so on the Republican side, there is certainly the perception that um, if they act irresponsible enough, that they'll be able to get something out of it. On the Democratic side, frankly, that perception does not exist. Um, you can say that we're too nice, <laughs> too well-intended, uh, too rational. Say whatever you will, we have not done that and have not used the debt ceiling in that way. Sure. And that, I think, very accurately describes your time in office. Uh, just as a little bit of a historical note, um, I won't go back to 1954 this time. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome, our, our listeners. Um, but from like the late 90s through the aughts, right up until but not including 2011, the pattern was that the party in power voted to raise the debt ceiling, while the party out of power would often vote against it and certainly use it as an opportunity to talk about what their spending priorities were. They would do this in a way that was not perilous, which is right. a really, really important thing to highlight. They were never at risk for actual default. They didn't play games in that specific regard, but they absolutely- They would just vote, they would just vote no. They would vote no. Would, so for example, uh, President Obama, when he was a Senator, voted against it in 2006. But I, I was gonna, uh, I was gonna bring that up as an example because then of course, when he was in the White House, and he was asked about that. He would say, yes, I was wrong. You uh, you shouldn't do that. Sure. So this this was something that, you know, both both parties have have used it uh, as a an occasion to talk about what their priorities are. Uh, but it has not actually been regularly perilous and, and regularly perilous until 2011. Um, right. So good periodization scheme. Yeah. And that and, and I draw that distinction as one thing to vote no when uh, you know there are the the votes there for it to vote yes and and you know not do something to uh, actively stand in the way versus then what began to happen in 2011 I, and that is exactly why i date the weaponization of this issue back to 2011 yeah that that's that's very accurate um uh, josh did you have a a Last question, or should I ask the congressman if he had has final thoughts? I don't. I just, I just wanted to thank the congressman for taking the time to talk to us and uh, and and appreciate his perspective on on all the things that we've been discussing today. Yeah, congressman, if you have any kind of final thoughts, we really really appreciate your time as well as your uh, you highlighting this incredibly important issue and the leadership that you've taken on it. I hope we have proven the debt ceiling can be a fun, exciting issue. <laughs> Eyes need <laughs> eyes need not gloss over, especially if you happen to be driving at this moment. Um, but uh, you know, given the the title of this podcast, next time I will require um, two beers to be sent my way, so I can <laughs> so I can actively participate. You're but, welcome no, in the office, Congressman. You can have as many beers as you want. <laughs> This, uh, you know, there's an argument that when alcohol was more plentiful in Congress, more bills got passed and hey. more things were done. We're in a more Puritan age uh, in in my time. But uh, be that as it may, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Laura, thank you for testifying before our committee last year. And uh, Josh, uh, a pleasure talking to you as well. And we'll continue to stay in touch because I think the next uh, the next several months will be quite the roller coaster between now and the X date. Absolutely. A bit, and also, you know, if, if your staff has my cell phone number, you need me to show up on, on the House floor with beer 
uh, to help you out. I'm 1000% willing to do that, Congressman, uh, because I love my country. Um, but just a gigantic thank you to you for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Okay. Us too. Mm.